uh, we took a one-month break uh, uh, from the Proverbs series, and during that time, I also took my paternity leave. So uh, it's been a while since I've been back to preach, and I want to thank you all for being so supportive and releasing during that time, and uh, we definitely needed that uh, time for Hannah to recuperate and for us to get used to new, new rhythm of our family, even though we're still not quite used to it. It's a, it's a joy and an honor to preach uh, God's word to you this, this evening. Uh, we're in Proverbs chapter 17, so please turn with me there. Proverbs, Proverbs 17, verse 7 to 28. Fine speech is not becoming to a fool, still less is false speech to a prince. A bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. An evil man seeks only rebellion, and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs, rather than a fool in his folly. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Why should a fool have money in his hand to buy wisdom when he has no sense? A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. One who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. A man of crooked heart does not discover good, and one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow. And the father of a fool has no joy. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. The wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. To impose a fine on a righteous man is not good, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cruel spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word to which is before our face, which the word, the wisdom of God that you have revealed to us. And we want to humbly listen, to hear your voice, to align ourselves to it. So please, God, speak to us, address us as your people, 
as your children, that we might wise up and live in accordance with your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Biblically speaking, a fool is someone who does not acknowledge God, uh, someone who lacks sense with regard to God. So the fool says in his heart, it says in Psalm 14:1, there is no God. That's the definition, Bible's definition of a fool. Uh, and that fundamental folly of not acknowledging God uh, makes them foolish in all their dealings with other people. It's like a crossword puzzle. In a crossword puzzle, the vertical and horizontal lines are interrelated so that if you get a, word in, a vertical line wrong, it's going to throw off the entire puzzle. All the horizontal lines that come off of that vertical line, you're going to get wrong. Similarly, if we don't get our vertical relationship right with God, you're going to get the horizontal relationship with other people wrong. And that's what this passage is about. It's about human folly, and some variation of the word fool occurs nine times in this passage. And it teaches us that human folly, because it is anti-God, it's profoundly anti-social, anti-humanity. And our world teems with fools. We were all once fools. But how should a wise person relate to them and interact with them? That's the question this passage answers. And it teaches us that those who trust in the sovereign judgment of the Lord can be loving and self-controlled even in the face of folly, even in the face of human folly. That's the main point. Uh, We're going to look at folly in speech and folly in justice and folly in relationships uh, and learn how to deal with each situation. So first, verses 7 to 9 introduces us to three different kinds of fools that I just mentioned that the rest of the passage will expand upon. So first, folly in speech, then justice, then relationships. And the three are interrelated, as we'll see. It says in verse 7 to 9, Fine speech is not becoming to a fool, still less is false speech to a prince. A bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. So first on this list is the folly in, the folly in speech. So it says, fine speech is not becoming to a fool, still less is false speech to a prince. Fine speech, eloquent speech, well-spoken speech, it doesn't fit a fool. It's like a gold ring in a pig's snout, as one proverb puts it. Or it's like tying a garbage bag with a little bow tie. It doesn't fit. The fool is better suited for silence. But that's not all. It says still less is false speech to a prince. If fine speech is not becoming of a fool, then it's even more the case that false speech is not becoming of a prince. A prince doesn't necessarily refer to a monarch. Uh, It's someone who has a noble bearing a noble character. So later in verse 26, the same Hebrew word is translated as the noble, which is parallel to a righteous man. So Solomon is assuming here that it's insufficient for a member of the royal family or the aristocracy or a ruler to be noble simply by virtue of their birth or heritage. Rather, they should be noble in their character. His noble character should match his noble station. 
and it's unbecoming of a noble person to lie. Uh, even more than fine speech is unfitting for a fool, false speech is unfitting for a wise person. Brothers and sisters, we must remember this as the children of God. We are children of the God who never lies, as Titus 1-2 says. False speech is beneath your dignity. Whenever you are tempted to lie in order to get the better of a situation or someone, remember how degrading it is for you to lie. We ought to instead live in a manner worthy of our identity in Christ. And if the fact that false speech is unbecoming of our character and it's, it's, isn't enough, that if that's not enough of a motivator for us, verse, verse 20 warns us of the consequence of false speech. A man of crooked heart does not discover good, and one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. Usually people lie in order to get out of trouble, right? Or to avoid trouble. But this is short-sighted because this proverb tells us that in the long run, in light of God's sovereign rule, it's the dishonest tongue that falls into calamity. Verses 27 and 28 continue to address folly in speech. It says, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. So these verses call for a cool spirit and closed lips. In the ancient Near East, as we do now, people often use the words hot and cool to refer to people's temperaments. A hot-spirited person is a short-tempered and hot-headed person, and a cool-spirited person is a patient and even-keeled person. And so a cool spirit and closed lips together represent self-control and restrained speech. And we have to understand this proverb in context because this passage throughout speaks of fools who lie to get their way, fools who pervert justice, Fools who bring grief to their parents and, and others in authority, their close friends as well. And even in the face of such human folly, he says, we are to be restrained in our words and self-controlled. But where does such restraint come from? According to verses 27 and 28, this restraint is the characteristic of the person who has knowledge, a person who has understanding. And what is knowledge and understanding? Proverbs chapter 2, 5 to 6 said that if we heed the words of this book, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So what is knowledge and understanding? Then they are in, in Proverbs, the knowledge and understanding of God and his word. It begins with the fear of the Lord, living before the presence of, under the authority of, and for the glory of God. That's what it means to live with the fear of the Lord. This knowledge of God and expectation of His sovereign judgment is what restrains our words and makes us self-controlled even in the face of human folly. We don't need to vent because of God's vengeance. We don't need to fight because God defends us. We don't need to win the argument because of God's judgment. And he says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. 
This proverb might be behind the, the aphorism often mis- misattributed to Abraham Lincoln. Quote, it is better to remain silent at the risk of being thought a fool than to talk and remove all doubt of it. If even a fool can be thought wise by being silent, how much more should a wise person hold his tongue in the face of folly? This doesn't mean that we should never speak up, of course. Verse 10 qualifies this. It says, A rebuke goes, into, goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. It implies that we should rebuke a man of understanding. The Bible calls us to exhort one another, to correct one another in God's people, among God's people. So the person who will listen and gain knowledge, we, are to off, we ought to offer rebuke because wise person is suited for that. But a fool, on the other hand, is suited, it says, only for a beating. It says a hundred blows, that's hyperbole, of course. Uh, the Old Testament never stipulates such steep punishment. Uh, but even when a fool receives the proverbial hundred blows, the teaching does not penetrate. It doesn't go very deep into the fool. One, uh, the 19th century English pastor, Charles Bridges, illustrated the comparison this way. He says, A simple word of rebuke was enough to make King David repent in 2 Samuel 12. Just a look from Jesus' eyes was enough to make Peter repent after his denial of Jesus in Luke chapter 22. But the hundred blows, a hundred blows wasn't enough to teach the Egyptian pharaoh in Exodus chapter 9. The wise person knows not to waste his breath. He knows better than to rebuke a fool in his folly. This is what verse 16 is speaking of. Why should a fool have money in his hand to buy wisdom when he has no sense? Proverbs sometimes uses the imagery of buying wisdom to tell us to cherish it more than silver and gold. It's asking us, why should a fool be able to buy wisdom when he has no mind to learn it? What's the use of giving Shakespeare to an illiterate person? What's the use of playing Mozart for a deaf person? A fool will not grasp wisdom, so the wise person knows when to spare his words. So that's what Solomon has to say about folly in speech. But in verse 8, he introduces a second kind of folly, folly in justice. A bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Like it or not, bribes are an integral part of how society runs throughout much of the world. And it works. Works like a charm. Money talks. To the one who gives it, it's like a magic stone. But note the important phrase, in the eyes of. A bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. That phrase reveals Solomon's true attitude toward bribes. Because frequently throughout Proverbs, that phrase, in the eyes of, is used to describe the fool. It warns us in chapter 3, verse 7, not to be wise in our own eyes. It says that the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, Proverbs 12, 15. It says in Proverbs 16, 2, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, 
but the Lord weighs the spirit. The briber is wise in his own eyes. He thinks he knows a secret that others are ignorant of. His ways are pure in his own eyes, and he's unaware that the Lord will bring his actions to judgment. The Bible consistently condemns bribery. Verse 23 later says in our chapter, the wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. Justice is perverted when someone who can afford to give a bride and is willing to stoop to giving a bride is able to manipulate justice because then people who cannot afford it and people who are too principled to give it are deprived of justice. There's a reason why bribes are given in secret. In, even the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 24 when he was being held in prison by Governor Felix, it says that Felix hoped that money would be given by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him in hopes that Paul would pay him a bribe. Bribery was normal and expected in that culture, but Paul never pays that bribe. Instead, he stays in that prison for two more years. And instead, you know what Paul does? It says in Acts 24, 25, it says that Paul reasoned with Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. A bribe is often effective when it is used, but this doesn't make it right. Verse 26 says, To impose a fine on a righteous man is not good, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. The briber ignores the sovereignty of God over human folly, He does what he sees fit with his own eyes and not what is fitting before the eyes of God. And for that, he will pay a much dearer price than his bribe on Judgment Day. So this is how we are to deal with fools who pervert justice. Verses 11 to 15 go into greater detail about that. So please follow along with me. Verses 11 to 15. An evil man seeks only rebellion, and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. These verses inform one another. A, fo- a fool in his folly says, like a she-bear robbed of her cubs. In other words, there is no reasoning with the fool. Think about it. When you meet a raging she-bear robbed of her cubs, you don't stand there and reason with her saying, hey, uh, I was just petting your cute cub. Hey, I was actually just trying to save your cub from extinction. That's a good way to get mauled by a bear. Likewise, there's no reasoning with the raging fool. There's no need to fret, however, because it says, though an evil man seeks only rebellion, rebellion against God and his appointed authorities, a cruel messenger will be sent against him. This is a messenger of judgment from God. God's justice will prevail in the end and overtake the rebellious fool. So don't fret when someone returns the good that you do for that person with evil. 
Even when they repay evil for good, we are not to repay evil for evil, as Romans 12, 17 to 19 says. It says here in this proverb, God will repay and evil will not depart from his house, from the house of the person who repays good with evil. Evil will become a permanent unwelcome guest in his household. So verse 14 says, The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. The beginning of strife is like a hole in a dam. Though the seepage is negligible at first, the pressure mounts up quickly and it bursts open the dam, causing an uncontrollable torrent. So it says, quit before the quarrel breaks out. Don't be consumed with confronting a fool in his folly who is like a she-bear robbed of her cubs. Quit before the quarrel breaks out. And we're able to do this because we trust in God's sovereign judgment. Verse 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. In this sinful, upside-down world, fools might get their way at times. Wicked people might be justified, and righteous people might be condemned. But such perversion of justice, it says, is alike an abomination to the Lord. The Lord detests them both, letting a wicked person go free and punishing an innocent person. They're equally abominable to God because His justice is perfect. And because we know this, we can avoid quarrels and not repay evil for evil because we trust in God's sovereign judgment. So this is how we are to deal with fools who pervert justice. And the third kind of folly that's in view is folly in relationships. Verse 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. An offense in this passage, an offense has been committed between friends, and there are two contrasting responses that we can take. First, it says, whoever covers an offense seeks love. This is similar to Proverbs 10, 12, which said that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. But there is a slightly different emphasis In chapter 10, verse 12, the covering up of the offense was motivated by love. But here in chapter 17, verse 9, the covering up of the offense happens with the goal of love. Whoever covers an offense seeks love or fosters love, as the NIV, the New International Version, translates it. The offense caused has already threatened the friendship once. If you cover the offense, the relationship will survive and love will continue. But if you go and repeat the matter, it will sever even a close relationship. The expression repeat the matter is wonderfully ambiguous. It's like the similar Greek expression, which means, which says double-tongued or to speak twice. It means to repeat something that shouldn't be repeated whether it's betraying someone's confidence and revealing a secret or berating someone by harping on that person over and over again about something that person did wrong. When you repeatedly remind your friend of how he offended you, when you retell 
something that they have confided in you or the way they have offended you to others, you are jeopardizing your friendship. If all of us keep this proverb in mind, we can greatly strengthen our community because offense is not unusual. If you live in close relationship with anyone, whether it's your housemates, other church members, or your family members, you're going to cause offense and you're going to be offended. But what will you do when you are offended? Will you let that offense die by covering it up Will you forgive or will you revive that offense again and again each time, each time you repeat it? An offense is like a cut on your skin. Once a scab covers it, there is a chance for healing. Just as when you cover up an offense, you seek love. But if you keep picking that scab open, it will never heal. In fact, it can get worse with an infection, and it will leave a permanent scar. If you repeat a matter, if you gossip, if you slander and say something ill of another, even close friendships, even intimate relationships will not survive. Perhaps some people respond at this point by saying, well, I don't want friends who offend me. So good riddance. But that's not what friendship is meant to be. Verse 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Just as a person who cheers for the Boston Celtics only when they're winning championships is no true fan of the team, a fair-weather friend, a bandwagon friend, a friend that's only there for you when, you, when, that, per, when, you're, when that person is pleasing you, a friend that's only there for you when you are well-liked by everybody else, a fair-weather friend is no friend at all. Love in hard times is what friends are made for. Enduring support and persevering love in times of adversity is what a brother is born for. And that's what we are meant to be as brothers and sisters in Christ. In times of adversity like this when many people are suffering, this is no time to isolate ourselves from one another. No time to forget about one another, be, distract ourselves with other things. It's the time to be reaching out. It's the time that we were born for, to be a brother to each other, a sister to one another. Verse 18 then serves to qualify verse 7. The fact that you should be a friend at all times, even in the face of adversity, does not mean that you should be a fool and become a surety for your friend. It says, one who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. The word friend in verse 17 and the word neighbor in verse 18 are the same words in Hebrew. And so this is not a prohibition of helping our neighbors and being generous to our neighbors and friends. 
The Bible in many places commands God's people to give generously and lend liberally to our neighbors and friends. But this is not the same thing as putting up security in the presence of your neighbor. In that case, you are neither lending to a needy neighbor nor giving to a poor neighbor. You are, in essence, assuming their debt wholesale and taking full responsibility for their financial situation. And biblical wisdom literature consistently warns against that practice. So this is placed here to qualify verse 17. Love your friend at all times, yes. Don't be a fool. Don't be naive. Don't become a surety. And then verse 19 says, Whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. Now here, the person who loves transgression on the one hand is contrasted with the friend who loves at all times in verse 17. And this person who loves transgression does not love his friend. That's the connection that this contrast is making. The reason why is because he loves transgression. He loves crime. A friend then, and this, I think I dealt with temptation much more when I was younger, maybe in my teens or perhaps even in college when peer pressure mounts. There are friends who try to drag you into transgressions, into crimes. But friends who do that are no true friends. They are unloving toward you because they love strife. People who love transgressions love strife. They are leading you to strife. And it says, He who makes his door high seeks destruction. The door is the entrance to a house. And to make one's door high is to make it inaccessible, protected and hidden away from view. The criminal who seeks to shield himself from scrutiny out then, while bringing destruction on society, will end up bringing destruction on himself. And then verses 21 to 25 shift to talking about having a foolish child. Verses 21 and 25 both speak of the father who has a foolish son, so it encloses this unit together. And it says in verse 21 and 22, He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow. And the father of a fool has no joy. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. This is the consequence of siring a fool. A joyful heart is good medicine, but the father of a fool has no joy, which means he has no medicine. A crushed spirit dries up the bones, and this father of a fool gets himself sorrow. And so his crushed spirit dries up his bones. In other words, a foolish child kills his or her parents. A foolish child saps the very life and vitality out of his or her parents. Verse 25 affirms the same. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. And then verses 23 and 24 tell us more specifically about this behavior of a foolish child says in verse 24, the discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. This is really insightful. God is not far away. Wisdom is not far away. He has revealed it to us. 
The phrase, the discerning sets his face toward wisdom, is literally, at the face of the discerning is wisdom. Wisdom is right in front of him. It's literally in his face. And that's what the discerning preoccupies himself with. In contrast, the fool sets his eyes on the ends of the earth, on distant, unattainable goals, on exotic fancies, on pipe dreams. I must travel the world and live my own life in order to discover myself and find fulfillment, says the fool. I need to delve into every religion, experiment with every philosophy, to find the truth, says the fool. When the truth is right in front of him, when God's unchanging, time-tested word is taught to him, when wisdom is presented to him in his own house by his own parents, he sets his eyes on the ends of the earth. It's easy to wag our fingers at such fools, but that's essentially what we have all done to God. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus uses a parable to compare sinners who have rebelled against God to a son who rebels against his father. And he says that he gathered all he had and took a journey into where? Far country. This is the fool that Proverbs 17 is talking about. And there he squandered his inheritance in reckless living. He had everything he needed at his father's house, but instead of setting his face toward wisdom, he set his eyes on the ends of the earth in the far country. He prematurely demanded his inheritance of his father, which was tantamount to wishing that his father were dead. And then he squandered his wealth with prostitutes. And that's what we have all done as sinners who once lived for ourselves and not for God. That's what we have done by disbelieving in God. Wishing that God were dead. That's what we have all done in enjoying God's good gifts in creation without acknowledging Him and giving thanks to Him as the giver of all good gifts. We have repaid God evil for good. We brought God the Father nothing but grief and bitterness. But in this parable, when after hitting rock bottom, this foolish son returns home, the lavish father, instead of disowning him and rejecting him like he should have, This father runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, welcomes him, and most outrageously, reinstates him as his son. And there's a problem, however, with this story. The father had two sons, and the older son has stayed at his father's house working diligently to build the family estate. If the younger rebellious son is reinstated as a son, That means he, the older son, must now share his rightful inheritance with him. And so this older son begrudges his brother's return. This creates a rift between him and his own father. But Jesus tells a story to tell 
to point to the ultimate good brother, the older brother, that will actually come to the rescue of his rebellious brother. And that's him, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, 11 says, she says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Jesus in John 15, 15 said, I now call you friends. Jesus is the friend who loves at all times. Jesus is the brother who was born for adversity. And in our greatest adversity, when we face the greatest enemy of our own sins that alienated us from God our Father, Jesus our friend and Jesus our brother came to our rescue. How? Proverbs chapter 17, 15 earlier said, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. God is holy and just, and he cannot condone the wicked. He cannot rightly justify us who are wicked. And yet, Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says that God justifies the ungodly. How does he do what is abominable to himself? That's because Jesus has paid our price. Because our brother, our friend, has died in our place on the cross and bore our sins and was raised from the dead. There's no greater love than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends because Jesus laid down his life for us, his friends. We, by trusting in him, now can be rescued. And we can receive the wisdom of God, be adopted, reinstated, as his children. And it's only as his children that we can live with trust in his sovereign judgment and face the worst of the human folly. Please take a moment to reflect on that. And ask yourself, how is God calling you to respond? this message are you seeing God rightly are you submitted to him are you trusting in him after you've done that we're going to respond by praying out loud together as a church